electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I am Carl Quintanilla in for Brian Sullivan. Tonight, to the breaking point, this holiday weekend will see the most flyers since before the pandemic. Can America's air system take it? Goodbye, Sin City. Las Vegas moves to become the world's new sports and entertainment capital. The CEO of MGM Resorts International will join us on the grand plans. Deposition day for Jamie Dimon on the bank's alleged ties to Jeffrey Epstein. We'll have the latest. Plus, the AI frenzy now reaching a fever pitch. Top tech watcher Dan Ives will join us with his best play. And lights, camera, cash. The summer box office race is on. Who stands to win Hollywood's golden crown? All that and much more Last Call is up right now. We'll get to all of that tonight. But first up, there are a lot of fast-moving developments on the debt ceiling negotiations in Washington, including an update on the Treasury Department's deadline for default. CNBC's Kayla Tausche has the latest. Good evening, Kayla. Good evening, Carl. This evening, President Biden is heading to Camp David, where he'll spend at least part of the weekend. And on the South Lawn just moments ago, he took some questions from reporters and had some optimism about a potential deal. Regarding the debt limit... Things are looking good and very optimistic. I hope we'll have some clear evidence tonight before the clock strikes 12 that we have a deal. But it's very close, and I'm optimistic. The White House also releasing a statement slamming the GOP desire for new work requirements. That's been a sticking point in negotiations, and it could be one of the final issues to be worked out that's standing between the parties and a potential deal. The White House saying that Republicans are threatening a recession and threatening to cost $8 million, job, $8 million jobs, rather, all for $11 billion in uh, deficit reduction. Earlier today, one of those GOP negotiators, Patrick McHenry, talked about some of those thorny issues and his outlook for a deal. Deals within reach, it just has to be agreed to, and we're waiting for the White House to understand the, the, the current set of terms we're dealing with. So they are all working around the clock and now a little bit more breathing room from the Treasury Secretary, who today sent a new letter to congressional leaders saying that there is a very specific X date, not as soon as or as early as, but now the X date is June 5th. That is the day that Treasury's extraordinary measures will run out and the country will not be able to pay its bills. In that letter, the secretary writing, we will make more than $130 billion in scheduled payments in the first two days of June, including payments to veterans and Social Security and Medicare recipients. Those payments will leave Treasury with an extremely low level of resources. And she notes that Treasury will not be able to make the $92 billion in payments that are due the week of June 5th. So now there's a little bit more than a week left to go. You heard the president, Carl, saying that there could be some positive signs by midnight. We'll see if a deal results on this holiday weekend. The president is scheduled to be back in Washington at least for a few hours on Sunday. 
So, Kayla, now that it's the fifth and not the first, if we back time it, when does text need to be finished being written and when would a logical vote day be? Well, I think by uh, early to mid next week is when the text would need to be finished. You know, you need uh, 72 hours for Republicans to read it. Leadership has said they will hold fast to that rule. They will not waive that for any agreement. Uh, And then you need the House to vote and then you need the Senate to vote. But it really depends on what that legislative calendar looks like, how soon they can get a deal after the holiday weekend and uh, how soon they, they can study it and get it up for a vote. And then, Carl, that all assumes that they have the votes to get it passed, which is still an open question. (laughs) We're going to get to that next. Kayla, thanks. We'll stay on the story uh, as it continues and updates come in. Let's take it to our panel. With us tonight, Actum Strategic Advisors co-chair, former acting White House Chief of Staff Mick Mulvaney, Veritas Financial Founder and CNBC contributor Greg Branch, and Politico Chief Economic Correspondent and CNBC contributor Ben White. Guys, great to see you all ahead of this holiday weekend. Thanks for staying late. Uh, Mick, I don't want to jump the gun. But are you ready to, to get past this part of the story and start talking about vote counts? Um, I, I don't know. Wait and see. Look, I, I think a lot of things are still so outstanding. Look, the, Yellen moving the date is weird. Okay, it, it just is. And moving it only a couple of days. She can't do that again. If she does it again, then she's got no credibility. She's already suffering of a credibility loss anyway amongst Republicans and some Democrats because she moved the date from the end of June to the 1st of June, which is just bizarre. You can move it later, but moving it ahead is just it's just very strange. Plus, and I, I'm still digesting the statement she put out, apparently more than a third, about $36 billion of this $92 billion she says she has to make, payments she has to make the first week in June, that June 5th date, why it's so critical, is an adjustment to payments to Social Security and Medicare. It's hard to tell if that's real cash or if that's just an, uh, an accounting entry. So, look, there's a bunch of different moving pieces. There's moving pieces up on the Hill. There's moving pieces on Treasury. It's really hard to understand. And now you sort of understand why men and women who serve in Congress are so frustrated with this process, because it's not very transparent. Yeah, Ben, I mean, $50 billion in Treasury, it's kind of hard to get your arms around what that means. But tonight, I saw some discussion of the number of Americans who have more in net assets than Treasury does uh, tonight. Do you think work requirements uh, can be a deal killer here or not? A deal killer? I think they absolutely could be. I mean, I see it uh, hard to imagine that the Democratic caucus and the White House are going to accept any kind of stringent new work requirements on entitlement programs as part of this deal. So, you know, Mick might have a different feeling on what the art of the possible is for the contours of what will be a deal because there will be one. I don't think that's part of it. I think there will be some spending caps and reductions, as we've seen in previous debt limit deals, uh, that won't amount to much and won't touch structural long-term debt and deficit. I I find it hard to imagine that uh, they'll get the Democrats they need, along with the majority of Republicans in the House, uh, to pass a debt limit bill that has those kind of work requirements in it, because the left is absolutely so fundamentally opposed, and as is the White House. So I would be surprised to see that in the final piece of agreement. Uh, Greg, we had a couple discussions here in the office or people who have been around long enough to remember the TARP vote and that when that came in and what a roiling day that was for markets. What, what do you think the trade looks like here? And even in a benign situation where you get something that does go to the floor, there's the discussion of austerity and what less government spending might mean to GDP uh, going forward from here. So, Carl, we have no good options at this point. And let me second mix a hypo- uh, hypothesis that uh, Janet Yellen's credibility has been assaulted. Let's let's not forget that she told us that we wouldn't even hit the debt ceiling until June and we hit it in January. So I think we have to take any estimate she has right now with a grain of salt. So I'm still looking at that June 1st date with a lot of anxiety. Uh, but at the end of the day, we have no good options at this point, Carl. 
uh, we are looking at a debt downgrade regardless, I think, at this point. And so Fitch has put us on watch. Moody's has put us on watch. And what we need, if, if we're going to, be, to believe Janet Yellen, is we need a deal by June 2nd. So that gives me more uh, comfort that we won't default. And I'm on record as saying that we probably will because I'm, I am apprehensive that we will reach a deal by June 2nd. But we are starting to get through the positioning, which is a little bit reassuring. Mick, do you think a downgrade is still possible here? And, I, you know, we talked to David Beers, for example, from S&P, who was part of the downgrade in 2011. And their framework was as long as you guys are going to continue to have this weird budget debt cap structure, there's going to be political risk. There's going to be debt risk. Uh, how do we get past that? Sure. Well, keep in mind, a big piece of what the S&P did back in the early 2010s was because the deal that we cut, people forget, they downgraded us after we raised the debt ceiling. Okay, And one of the reasons, you go back and you read the report, and I have read it several times, I just testified to Congress on this last week, was like, look, you cut a deal, but you didn't solve your problem. You kicked the can down the road, and that's the reason we're downgrading you. That risk is still going to be there. Regardless of what happens, there's no major sort of reworking of our fiscal situation right now. There's no fiscal consolidation. There's no long-term plan. There's no sort of arc towards a balanced budget. So yeah, if we get downgraded, will it be spun as for political reasons because the Democrats, Republicans can't get along, can't do a deal? Yeah, but the fundamentals are what's really would drive it, which is that we're spending way too much money with zero plan of how to pay it back. Ben, how do you think we get escape velocity from here? I mean, if, if in fact, we can revisit this in a couple of years, do, is it about the 14th Amendment? Do you want to mint the coin? I mean, so how, no, do you, how do you- No, go? I don't want to do either of those, <laughs> Carl, but I, I do want to get rid of the debt limit entirely, which is an anachronism dating to World War One and has nothing to do with approving new spending, as, as Mick knows. It just authorizes Treasury to cover spending Congress has already made. We had the Gephardt rule for you know, a while. That's, 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 that part is absolutely it's false. Not false we've, already, we, we've already paid for the previous spending. The only part right. of, the, of going forward that would deal with past spending is the interest. Okay? We've already paid for everything that the government yeah. spent up to today. When you raise right. the debt ceiling... Treasury's not you raising see. the debt limit to spend new money. It's covering existing money that's already My point point is that it doesn't serve a useful purpose. And I agree with Mick that the long-term problem is a big one and that there are structural problems with our economy and the percentage of debt to GDP that we have, and we should address them on entitlements, on spending. I don't think it's useful to the country to do it this way with a gun to the head type of situation where we can get downgraded. It's not the only leverage that's out there. It's not the only thing, the only tool that can be used. It's outserved its purposes there needs to be a serious adult discussion about long-term debt deficit. This is not the way to do it. All it does is wind up screwing us all up, messing up the economy, slowing down the economy, and maybe getting downgrades. I, I just think that the debt ceiling itself is an anachronism. Well, uh, Greg, slowing down the economy might be inevitable no matter how this particular episode ends. And I do wonder uh, what, what your view might be for markets. I mean, equities, corporate growth. Uh, GDP, if we're really going to tackle more than even uh, just discretionary spending. I mean, how, how, who, who is ever going to want to have that kind of pullback on, uh, quote unquote, stimulus on their watch? So I'm going to say a lot of things right now, Carl, that some will deem alarmist. It is almost a certainty at this point that we're going to face a downgrade. We saw this in 2011. We had an 11th hour deal and we got downgraded anyway. For many of the reasons that Ben and, and Mick have alluded to, in that the rating agencies just couldn't put any faith in us having a consistent, secure process to resolve these things. 
And so in the event that we have a downgrade, the credit markets are going to seize up more than they already have. And that's not even accounting for the CRE debacle that we have looming in later this year into 2024, as many of these loans get repriced with many of these commercial properties receiving less revenue than they already have. So as the as interest rates continue to go up, regardless of what the Fed does, as the credit market sees up, as banks loan out less money because they're concerned about their own balance sheets, the economy slows. That's a natural result of that. And estimates are not reflecting that right now, Carl. For the back half, we're looking at about 2% growth in third quarter uh, based on consensus and about 9% growth in fourth quarter. I find those unachievable based on where we are today. I put 0% probability on those numbers. Consensus, consensus is looking at 245 yep. on the S&P in 2024. That is unachievable. Yeah, it's a little strange. At the same time, uh, we know how dynamic our companies are, and we have seen some earnings numbers gone up That's this fair. week. We'll see. Uh, Mick, Greg, Ben, uh, we'll see what happens tonight and over the weekend. Thanks. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Carl. Thanks, Carl. Uh, meantime, while stocks did rally today, here's how they finished for the week. The Dow dipped 1%. S&P ticked up slightly three-tenths. NASDAQ, driven by all that AI hype, surged two and a half. Five straight positive weeks. On to studs and duds for the week. No surprise here. NVIDIA saw its value shoot up by several billion dollars, climbed nearly 25% on that AI excitement. Ulta Beauty, the dud of the week, falling more than 14% for the week. Coming up next, the biggest crush of passengers since before the pandemic. Can America's air system withstand the pressure from the holiday weekend? Plus, Las Vegas' big bet to become the world's new sports and entertainment capital. The CEO of MGM Resorts International will be here. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Brace for takeoff this holiday weekend. We'll see a surge in air travelers, the likes of which we haven't seen in years. Can America's fragile air travel system withstand the pressure? CNBC's Phil LeBeau is at Chicago's O'Hare International Airport with more. Here at Chicago's O'Hare Airport, the Memorial Day weekend travel rush is off to a smooth start. Thanks to good weather around the country and increased staffing for airlines and airports. From yesterday through next Tuesday, 16.5 million people are expected to get on a plane, up almost 6% compared to last year, making this the busiest Memorial Day weekend since 2019. The airlines are confident we will not see a repeat of last year when they scheduled too many flights with too few crew members causing massive cancellations. Since then, airlines have added thousands of pilots, flight attendants, and ramp workers, while the FAA has adjusted schedules 
schedules at congested airports like those in New York City. And it is gradually increasing the number of air traffic controllers on duty. Secretary of Transportation Pete Buttigieg says this weekend will be a big test. What I'm really looking for is resilience in the system. You can't control the weather, but when you do get weather in a certain part of the country or when an issue comes up, how quickly can the airlines recover? We pushed them a lot last year to build more resilience into the system, and we're seeing a lot of indications of that. Another challenge for the airlines and airports will come next week. That's when the daily passenger count is expected to top 3 million for the first time since 2019. Carl, back to you. Thank you very much, Phil LeBeau. Meantime, one area that's seen a major travel surge this weekend is Sin City. Las Vegas is expected to see over 330,000 visitors this weekend, and hotel occupancy on the Strip expected to exceed 93%. That's according to the city's Convention and Visitor Authority. How long can those good times last? Bill Hornbuckle is CEO of MGM Resorts, and their portfolio, you may know, includes some of the most iconic properties, including Bellagio, Aria, MGM Grand, Mandalay Bay, Park MGM, and Luxor. Bill, welcome to Last Call. Thanks for being with us. My pleasure. Evening, Carl. How are you? I'm good. You know, I was just thinking uh, during the depths of the pandemic, we wondered if numbers like this were ever going to be possible. I mean, can you just talk about your level of surprise? Uh, yeah, look, we obviously through 2020, we were actually closed 60 days and it took some ramp time. But by the end of the year, we felt really comfortable we were going to come back. Obviously, we had a blip. I think you may recall the first six weeks of 21. COVID had reemerged and we had a bit of a challenge. But since then, uh, it's been off to the races. I mean, you just mentioned some of the numbers this weekend. Um, we'll sell out all of our resorts. And it's kind of interesting, though, when you think about what's happening in Las Vegas, while this would be exceptionally busy, every weekend has become exceptionally busy. Um, last weekend, we had Electric Daisy Festival. A couple weekends earlier, um, we had um, a, a big country artist, and I can't think of her name right now. Um, <laughs> You've got so many um, artists, you can't keep them straight. No, yeah. Um, <laughs> So it's just been it's been amazing. And sports literally two weeks ago, two and a half weeks ago, the Raiders announced their calendar for this coming year. It was the biggest booking day we'd had in 2023. So sports, events, entertainment's driving it. Mainline entertainers, uh, entertainers are driving it. You know, we kind of kicked it off in 16. Uh, we built T-Mobile on the hope that they would come. And we got lucky. Uh, the Golden Knights showed up. And this weekend, we're hosting Game 5 of the Western Finals. Uh, we hope to go to the Stanley Cup, which will then drive additional visitation through June. Um, we launched Park Theater. We were able to get Lady Gaga and Bruno Mars to underline it. We've now added Usher to that story. And so it just every weekend compounds itself. And then our convention business has ultimately returned as well. Uh, the country artist was Taylor Swift, by the way, for 120 <laughs> people. Sounds familiar, um, playing not too far yeah. from where we are right now. I do wonder, yeah, Bill. So it's been it, an incredible it, journey. Does all that mean that, that gambling, per se, is less of the pitch, less of the narrative? I think, look, it's always part of the narrative and why people come. Although if you ask them today, literally a single digit say they come to game, the vast majority of them come for entertainment, convention, or otherwise. You know, it's still a big portion of our business. It's about 50% of our revenues collectively in the company. Uh, but it's interesting, a place like Bellagio or some of our higher-end products our top line is 70% non-gaming. Our bottom line is about 50-50 gaming to non-gaming. But where we've seen the growth, it's rooms, it's food and beverage, it's catering, it's entertainment. You know, our average rates are up about 30% this year. And that's consistent with what happened last year as well. And so um, it's non-gaming activity that's driving the growth, driving expansion of the market. 
And there's just you know a lot more to come. If we think about the summer, um, again, Allegiant's got a full lineup. Beyonce is coming um, and others. And so it's pretty exciting you think about the future of Las Vegas um, and where it's all going. Yeah. Bill, you know, one of the stories that got attention this week on the tape was about China and Macau and some strangely canceled events and the notion that what if there was a, a return to some sort of public health worry? Would they ever go back to zero COVID there? How are you thinking about that? Um, since I just returned from there 24 hours ago, thinking very positive, uh, the place is booming. Uh, it recovered even quicker than Las Vegas has in terms of volumes. Uh, the vast majority of the city after just a couple of months is up to 50 to 60%. Our company's doing very well. We're up to about 90% of 19 levels. And so um, it is doing exceptionally well. I don't think there's a view of any zero tolerance to go back to starting anew. Um, you know, I think it's the policy will be, let's just get through this if in the factory emerges. Um, but I was there again, yet, again yesterday, literally booming. Bill, you mentioned sports, and it's not a secret that it's become a huge sports town over the past few years. You mentioned the Raiders, uh, the Golden Knights, your company's T-Mobile Arena hosting March Madness, Sweet 16. Uh, there's a new baseball team coming to town. You mentioned Formula One. You wrote a piece for LinkedIn where you called Las Vegas the new sports and entertainment capital of the world. I guess, what does that mean for business? Is there another major American city that, you're, that you have in mind that you want to replicate, or is this, is this completely new? Well, it's completely new for Las Vegas, particularly at this scale. And I think here's the difference. When you go to a hockey game or a football game, you go through a three-hour event. When you come here, and I'll use Allegiant as the example for the Raiders games, 60% of those fans are visitors. They come for a three-day event that happens to have a football game. And so the economic driver, the motivator, the visitation, is just put us at a whole different plateau. And so we're driving it. Obviously, if the A's ultimately get done and come to the community, something we would embrace we think that's compelling as well. And so we have yet another sports team, uh, you know, would be only left without the NBA. And so the activity case almost every weekend now driven by sports, driven, driven by top line entertainment is exceptionally compelling. And then midweek, our convention business is back between 80 and 90 percent. And so it's been you know, just an amazing opportunity given this year. And we think throughout the balance of the year. Huge economic story for the country. Always has been, uh, Bill. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. Thank you. Thanks, Carl. Appreciate it. Bill Hornbuckle, MGM Resorts CEO. Still ahead, Jamie Dimon on the hot seat. We're getting details on what the J.P. Morgan chief said during a high-stakes deposition today. We'll break down the latest. Plus, a frenzy to remember. AI stocks head into overdrive, but Dan Ives says it's not too late for investors to start jumping in. He'll tell us where. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Welcome back. A story we've been following closely here on Last Call. J.P. Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon faced his deposition today in the civil suits against the bank surrounding what it might have known about disgraced financier Jeffrey Epstein. The deposition, which will continue into tomorrow, comes as we learned more about the bombshell deposition of Mary Erdos. 
This past March, another high-ranking J.P. Morgan executive. According to reporting from The Washington Post, Erdos had been alerted at least six times of Epstein's legal troubles. She had also been informed as early as 2006 to suspicious account activity, including withdrawals, adding up to more than $750,000 a year. In that nine-hour deposition, Erdo stated she didn't think it was her responsibility to drop Epstein as a client to the bank or investigate him further. That article provided some explosive new details that only further complicates Diamonds and the bank's role in all of this. Let's bring in senior Washington correspondent Eamon Javers, who's been covering this case closely, and the Washington Post's Aaron Gregg, who wrote that piece about the Erdo's deposition. Eamon, we do have some news from the bank tonight, don't we? Yeah, that's right, Carl. And we do know now that there will not be a second day of deposition for Jamie Dimon today. I'm told that they wrapped everything up and they are done done at this point. Here's what they said in the statement from J.P. Morgan that we got a short time ago after everything wrapped. At today's deposition, our CEO repeatedly confirmed that he never met with him, never emailed him, does not recall ever discussing his accounts internally and was not involved in any decisions about his account. As we have said, we now know that Epstein's behavior was monstrous and his victims deserve justice. In hindsight, any association with him was a mistake and we regret it, but these suits are misdirected as we did not help him commit his heinous crimes. And the sense is here, Carl, that that's exactly what Jamie Dimon will have said in today's deposition, about seven hours in total, I'm told, uh, of grilling here for Jamie Dimon on what his role in all of this was and then what the bank's role more largely has been. And during the course of this, we have seen some relatively embarrassing details coming out from this investigation about how J.P. Morgan handled Jeffrey Epstein as a client to the bank and questions raised about whether or not the bank should have done more to stop the sex trafficking, Carl. Eamon, let's bring Aaron and Vicki Ward, by the way, investigative journalist with the Vicki Ward Investigate Substack newsletter, host of the podcast Chasing His Lane. Um, Aaron, let me begin with you and just talk about uh, why do you think the bank has let it get to this point? So the bank faces some fairly serious allegations. They're being accused by the government of the U.S. Virgin Islands of directly aiding and abetting uh, the sex trafficking operation that Jeffrey Epstein led. Uh, this mirrors a different suit out of Deutsche Bank, which has settled for $75 million. I, I'm, I'm sure that uh, J.P. Morgan's lawyers are not happy about that settlement because it does put some pressure on them. Um, it's a fairly serious allegation. Basically, what prosecutors are saying is that without the bank's help and without the legitimacy and the cash that a connection with J.P. Morgan or Deutsche Bank confers, he could not have done what he did. His entire operation was funded by cash, taken out uh, in amounts of forty dollars to $80,000 at once. Uh, he appears to have told them this was for airplane fuel, um, but for some reason, despite the fact that uh, Mary Erdos and other executives were told about these withdrawals repeatedly since at least 2006, they did not connect the fact that he was also facing child sex trafficking allegations. Vicki, I know you don't cover banking per se, but I mean, J.P. Morgan, uh, many would argue, has operated on all cylinders for a long time, masters at, at risk management. Why do you think Epstein appeared to be such a draw uh, for this wealth management division, at least? Was it about his money or the money of the people that he knew? Well, Carl, I mean, I think that's one of the things that's uh, emerged in the last few weeks from reporting like errands around the discovery uh, in this case, that Jeffrey Epstein was a gateway to the plutocracy. 
and that they all know each other in this little world of the 0.01%. I mean, at this point, it's almost a dinner party game, right? Who didn't know Jeffrey Epstein in that club? Who didn't go for coffee with him? More and more names have come out. And you can see why increasingly that JP Morgan's bankers would have wanted to meet with Jeffrey Epstein, as they indeed did, even after he was no longer a client, even after they'd closed his account for precisely the reasons that Aaron's just been discussing. Aaron, you know, um, there are much larger uh, industry dynamics going on regarding J.P. Morgan. They're bringing a lot of stability to the banking system in this country, which is obviously under some strain. And it also comes at a time where people are speculating about the twilight of Diamond's tenure. I wonder what you think it does to his legacy and then what it might do to whatever process brings us his successor when that happens. That's a very good question. It's hard to predict uh, how this might affect uh, future leadership at J.P. Morgan. What the bank has has done throughout this uh, uh, this uh, lawsuit is they have foisted blame uh, pretty firmly on Les Staley. He's the former executive who described himself as a close friend of Epstein's. Uh, he left the bank in 2013, and it was his departure that allowed Mary Erdos to to basically fire Jeffrey Epstein which she did in a meeting at his house, according to her deposition. Um, the bank is now suing Staley, and they're also accusing the Virgin Islands of enabling uh, Jeffrey Epstein's sex trafficking, uh, kind of pushing things back at them. So they're, they're pretty aggressively pushing back against these allegations. It's hard to affect how this might, or it's hard to uh, determine how this might affect Erdos's uh, future prospects at the company. Yep. Um, she was the person who actually fired Jeffrey Epstein after all. Some may say that she should have done it sooner, but she was the one who did it. Eamon, you got thoughts on that? Yeah, Carl, I just wanted to jump in here. This doesn't happen all that often, but I literally, as I'm sitting here, uh, just got a text message from the other side. I read you the J.P. Morgan statement. <clears throat> now we've got a text message here from the other side. This is a statement from Brad Edwards. He's the lawyer for Jane Doe. Literally just texted to me, uh, and it appears to be in response to that statement that I just read you at the top of this very segment. So let me read this to you in real time. The statement from Brad Edwards, the lawyer for Jane Doe here, who is suing J.P. Morgan, is... The fact that J.P. Morgan insisted nobody say anything about Mr. Diamond's deposition and then left the room to give a cherry-picked, self-serving quote to the press is absurd. Rather than mislead anyone about what was or was not said, why don't they just agree to release the whole transcript? We will. Then the world can put their comment in context and decide for themselves what they thought of Mr. Diamond's testimony as a whole. So an aggressive statement here from Brad Edwards, the lawyer for Jane Doe, uh, responding to that statement that we got from J.P. Morgan at the top of this very segment, Carl, uh, and suggesting that they want to put out the entire Jamie Dimon transcript from today's proceedings, which just wrapped up a short time ago, Carl. We're clearly not done talking about this one. Eamon, thank you. Eamon Javers, Aaron Gregg, Vicki Ward, appreciate it very much for joining Last Call. Straight ahead, more, more, more. Investors can't get enough of AI. But not all paths may be paved with gold. Some details next. Happy Friday. Your exclusive insider buying segment is back. This is where we highlight the top five stocks being bought by the most C-suite level executives with their own money. These are not stock buybacks, but they're high level executives dropping their own cash 
on their own stock. Our info comes with our thanks to Verity Data. And as always, we're counting it down five to one. Let's go. This week, stock five, Insulet, a board member buying a touch over a million dollars worth of the medical supplies company. Number four, General Motors, also a just over one million dollar buy from CFO Paul Jacobson, also made a big buy last year. Third biggest insider buy this week is at National Vision Holdings, where the chairman Picked up 1.038 million of the stock, now to the top two buys of the week. The second is at a company called Gen Digital, where the president snapped up 4.7 million worth of this Arizona-based cybersecurity company. And the biggest insider buy of the week, Royalty Pharma Trust. The CEO buying 4.8 million worth, and if that sounds familiar, it should. It was also on last week's top five buys. Fun fact, this is the first time ever we've seen the same company on this list two weeks in a row. A name to watch. There you go. The names this week. Insulet GM, National Vision Holdings, Gen Digital, and Royalty Farmer will bring you this nearly every week except during earnings season when there are quiet periods. And it's a segment you'll only see here on Last Call and on CNBC Pro later tonight. Moving on to the money theme of the week, and that's the massive AI wave given the tsunami-sized boost to many companies. Chip makers Marvell Technology and NVIDIA, huge gains following that surge of demand for AI products, while big AI players Microsoft and Alphabet also end the week in the green. The rally amounted to a $334 billion increase in market cap for all four companies. Question is, what's the best way to play AI? Chips? services, maybe even an under-the-radar under play. Joining us to break it down, Webbush Securities Managing Director Dan Ives. Dan, what a week. Uh, I wonder, to the degree you're thinking, are you looking for dark horses or are the obvious plays so powerful that you can basically ride consensus? Yeah, look, I think part of it, when I look at really who's leading this goal rush, it's obviously Microsoft, Google, NVIDIA, but, but, but I think what we're starting to see now is the second derivatives, the Salesforce.com, the Snowflake, the Palantirs. That's most investors right now. That's the focus because, in my opinion, based on our estimates, we think this is an $800 billion incremental opportunity over the next decade, something unlike I've seen in 22 years covering tech. You know, this week uh, there have been some uh, research desks trying to find a similar period, right? And they point to mobile internet, where you had the chips play first, Qualcomm, then the devices like Apple and Samsung, and then later the services like uh, Amazon, for example, and, and Google. Is it going to be like that? Or is all of this going get, to get compressed into an even shorter time period? Well, I think it's going to be in a shorter time period. And ultimately, I think the spending could even you know, be significantly more. Because what we're starting to see right now is 35 to 40 dollars of potential incremental AI spend for every hundred dollars that's been spent on the cloud. You start to put that through that NVIDIA beat, the historic Hall of Fame beat that we saw this week. You can now start to maybe see that trajectory out on some of the cloud plays, some of the application plays as this arms race takes out in AI. How is the market going to sniff out the companies that want to have AI next to their name in a headline or a wire, or wire copy, but haven't really thought out the plan, aren't willing to offer up numbers? It's not manifesting themselves in their business. How does the market uh, determine who's, who's faking it and making it? Yeah, it's a, it's a phenomenal question. And that's why analysts and you'll see institutional retail in terms of so focused on this. And I can tell you, I had institutional investors that wouldn't even touch AI. They, they thought it was a joke six months ago. Today, it's digging in with them, trying to understand who actually have the products, 
who could be the beneficiaries? Because I think there's going to be clear winners and losers. And, and I think that's why this is what I view as really, you know, one of the most phenomenal themes that we've seen in tech. But this is not a bubble in terms of what we saw in the NVIDIA. That's a game changer that I think will live on for years. Yeah. As for NVIDIA, um, everyone who doesn't already know, Dan, is now wondering who's Jensen Wong? Where is this company from? Are they, how did they get so big so fast? How much of a household name do you think he becomes if, in fact, we're on the cusp of some kind of generational change? Yeah, I put Jensen along with Nadella, Musk, Cook, and you know Lisa Sue and some others in, in terms of my view of, of where he sits. I mean, you talk about skating where the puck's going. What he did here with NVIDIA, especially when it came to AI, many investors were really skeptical of that bet. And this is basically going to be a grand slam, a historical bet that I think puts him up in that upper echelon of CEOs. NVIDIA is going to be a household name for years to come. It's definitely changing uh, the entire tone of the markets, uh, Dan. It's been incredible to watch just this week alone. Uh, Good long weekend. Thanks, Dan Ives. Thanks. Coming up, the battle for box office supremacy is on. Who stands to reign as the summer king of Hollywood? Stay with us. Welcome back. Summer blockbuster season is officially underway and movie theaters and studios are hoping it brings some badly needed revenue into their pockets. CNBC's Julia Borston has the latest from Julia from Hollywood. Hey, Julia. Well, Carl, all of Hollywood is hoping Memorial Day will deliver a big holiday weekend box office. And industry watchers are focused on one big number for the summer at the movies. It's $4 billion. If the domestic box office tops that number this summer, then it means that the industry is robust and back at pre-pandemic levels. The summer box office topped that key $4 billion number 12 of the prior three years leading up to the pandemic. Now, going into the summer, the theater chain stocks have made gains on growing confidence in the industry, thanks to some big hits, such as Universal's Super Mario movie setting records for the biggest animated movie ever, as well as Guardians of the Galaxy from Disney's Marvel. Now, after a volatile few years, so far in 2023, Cinemark shares are up 92% year-to-date. IMAX shares up 17%, both on growing confidence in the industry, while AMC Entertainment, which is more of a meme stock, is up 14% year-to-date. Now, it's not just the theater chains. Every single one of the major studios has a lot on the line this summer, with at least one big-budget-wide release. And all of the studios continue to bet big on sequels and established franchises. Disney is launching its live-action Little Mermaid remake this weekend and has an upcoming Indiana Jones sequel in addition to a Pixar film. And Cowan says that Disney could be the biggest winner this summer. Cowan also notes that Warner Brothers Discovery has the most potential variance in performance, with a lot of buzz about both The Flash and its Barbie movies. Sony has a Spider-Man sequel, Paramount has its Mission Impossible sequel, Dead Reckoning, and Universal's Fast and Furious Fast X launched last week. So does the industry have a shot at the $4 billion number? Well, the numbers of movies are working in its favor. There are 20 more wide-release films set for release this summer than last summer, according to Comscore. 
That means that this summer there is a shot at the box office topping that $4 billion number, though it is unclear if the writer's strike and a potential Screen Actors Guild strike could impact the ability of movie stars to promote their films. Carl? Julia Borston, thanks. Uh, the box office does have a lot to offer this summer. The live-action Little Mermaid that Julia referenced already making a splash, expected to bring in upwards of $120 million this Memorial Day weekend. But will the cash continue to pour in for other big releases this summer? Let's bring in that expert. Joining us for more on what to expect this summer, Comscore senior media analyst Paul DeGarabiti. And Paul, Julia quoted you on that $4 billion number. Can we get it? I really think we can. I mean, I'm going out on a little bit of a limb, but let's look at it this way. Last summer reached $3.4 billion in box office with 20 fewer films in the marketplace. So we only need about 600 million extra gas in the tank this summer to get to that 4 billion level. Now the summer movie season is incredibly important because on average, it represents 40% of the domestic box office year, according to our Comscore numbers. So it is a big deal. It's a big indicator. And with the number of movies on tap, I mean, Julia presented them beautifully in, in the previous segment. There are so many big movies on tap, and the momentum that's building here is incredible. We're going to have a great Memorial weekend. And then all through June, July, and August is chock full of big films, whereas last year, August was a bit fallow in terms of the number of releases. So I'm very bullish on the potential for the box office for this summer. Fascinating. You also point out that the number, the, the releases we've had so far this year are showing shallower drop-offs in the second and third weeks. That's important, isn't it? That is really important. If you look at Guardians of the Galaxy, Super Mario, uh, so many of the films, uh, John Wick, chap Chapter 4, so many of these films are holding in there, but it's generally related to the quality of the movie, whether it's the social media chatter about them, the fans talking about them, or the critics. But the movies that tend to resonate are good movies, movies that by any measure deliver entertainment value and also deliver the, on the promise of their marketing. And that's very important too. And let's face it, people just love going out to the movie theater. And this Memorial weekend with The Little Mermaid, I think is gonna tell us a lot. And if it does that 120 million for Friday through Monday, that's a big deal for movie theaters and for the studios. Theaters really are the engine that drives this train. And it's really showing up in the numbers right now. And it's, it's very encouraging for an industry that's been really had a rough go for the past oh, yeah. two, two and a half, three years. Yeah. So if you were Sony, Disney, Universal, Warner, Paramount, who would you want yeah. to be uh, going into the this 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 big period of the year? Oh, that's a really good question. I, I think I'd want to be all of them because they <laughs> all have something to offer. And if you think about it, a rising tide raises all ships. It's a bit of a cliche, but it's true because if you have a big movie weekend after weekend, audiences will be in theater, see the marketing for those films, check out the trailers, and a trailer on the big screen with that great sound and, and that image is so powerful and it gets people even more pumped up to go out to the movie theater each month of this entire summer movie season. Oh yeah, I think uh, moviegoers know exactly the feeling you mean. Paul, good weekend, thanks. Thanks, Carl. Barry Bedian. Coming up, how one of the world's biggest video game makers is answering the call of duty this Memorial Day. Stay with us.
Welcome back to Last Call this Memorial Day Friday. We all know about the incredibly popular war video game Call of Duty made by video game development company Activision Blizzard. But what you may not know is Activision's real life Call of Duty. That's where the Call of Duty endowment comes in. Founded by Activision CEO Bobby Kotick, the organization places the veterans who helped inspire the game into high quality careers after leaving the service. Since its founding in 2009, the Call of Duty endowment has placed more than 100,000 veterans into meaningful employment, and to date, Activision Blizzard has donated more than $38 million to the organization. Joining us tonight, General James Jones, co-chairman of the Call of Duty Endowment, also served as the 32nd Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps, former National Security Advisor under President Obama. General, thanks for your time tonight. Happy Memorial Day. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you and to talk about this. You know, I, I covered labor uh, in many, many years ago, and I remember doing a story about the difficulty of placing former servicemen and women into the private sector. And there's a bunch of different challenges. I wonder if you think it's gotten better over the years. I think it has gotten better, but we still need uh, to do more work. Um, the, we, we need to explain to the services uh, exactly uh, uh, what's available for uh, servicemen and women who decide to leave uh, the armed forces um, after their, their honorable service. And, uh, Call of Duty Endowment is one of those uh, great opportunities. Uh, as you mentioned, uh, over 113,000, 118,000 veterans have been placed. That's about 23 veterans a day for the last 14 years. Uh, we're able to get uh, good salaries. Uh, the average is about $70,000 a year um, and $73 million for the grantees. So. We pay a lot of attention to the, to the organizations that purport to um, help veterans, and we hold them to a pretty high standard every year. We review their achievements, and depending on their success, they they get funding for the for the following year. So it's it's very exciting, very productive, and um, we just need to shine the bigger light on it so that. Uh, the servicemen and women know that it's out there, and more importantly, the employers know that they can have access to a talent pool that is second to none. Yeah, uh, the ability to uh, follow instruction or understand a chain of command, obviously handle uh, complex duties. I, and, and of course, the labor market's much different now. Uh, is the quality of jobs they're getting better, uh, more than just the number? Yes. Uh, uh, as a matter of fact, the, the quality of jobs that, uh, that we place veterans uh, into or, or the organizations that actually find the jobs um, has improved. And, and the, the base salary is, as I said, somewhere around $70,000. That's pretty appealing. One of the things that we have uh, have to do with the, uh, with the veterans um, is to make them understand that uh, you know, they serve honorably and uh, we owe them um, whatever we can do to help them continue with their livelihood in the civilian sector. Uh, there's just tremendous benefits for for the employers to hire these veterans who have been disciplined, trained, loyal, hardworking, honest. Um, and um, we, we, we still need to do more, but uh, the potential is uh, very uh, inspiring. General, it's an important story, and this weekend's the perfect opportunity to think about it and reflect on it. We thank you for your service. Have a great weekend. Thanks for joining Last Call. Well, thank you very much, and uh, it's a great opportunity to talk to you about a great organization. Thank you. Thanks, General.
At the top of the show, we talked to the MGM CEO, and for more than seven decades, Nevada held uncontested control as America's casino mecca. But 45 years ago tonight, everything changed. For those of you not willing to take my father's advice, this casino is now open. That was the opening of Atlantic City's Resorts Casino Hotel back in 78. Resorts became the country's first legal casino outside of Nevada, began New Jersey's big bet on gambling and efforts to revitalize Atlantic City. That bet paid off big time, at least for a while. AC turned into the home of 12 casinos at its peak, raking in more than $5 billion in annual gambling revenue. More recently, though, the city's fallen on tougher times. But that moment back in 78 helped pave the way for a boom across the U.S. Nearly 981 casinos now dot the country, more than $60 billion in gaming revenue. As they say, the die is cast. That does it for Last Call tonight. Brian Sullivan back Tuesday. Have a great Memorial Day weekend. If a friend asks how you're doing, and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because, If I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free, confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. 